0: This is Sydney Otomanchuk from Inside Scientific, the online environment for life science webinars, virtual events, interviews, and educational content that helps you do your best work. Our Real Science sessions focus on connecting with researchers, educators, and industry professionals from all walks of life that make scientific discovery and innovation possible. We talk about their work, their passions, their pitfalls, why they got into science in the first place, and where the road lies ahead. Today, I'm talking with Megan Loy, Senior Category Director of InVivo Services at Scientist.com. We'll be discussing her perspective on clinical trials, having recently been involved in one after years performing research within the biopharma industry. Megan was diagnosed with an orphan and rare disease that unfortunately required less than ideal treatment options, which left her facing a difficult choice, except the potentially harmful side effects, which might leave her health further compromised, or take matters into her own hands and seek out clinical trials investigating novel treatments that might provide a better outcome. She chose the latter. Keep listening to hear the full story of Megan's journey from behind the microscope to under it and what she learned along the way. Welcome, Megan. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. Before we get started, tell me a little bit about your background and research and what you're doing now. Absolutely. So,
1: I actually attended the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and as an undergrad, although I was working with agricultural species mostly, I also worked in a vivarium, uh, in a very small mouse lab with a professor, and that was kind of my introduction into laboratory animals. I eventually wound up at the Covant site in Madison, working with all sorts of species, and I was there for close to six years, so I got a really interesting insight into how kind of the preclinical space works. During that time, I was also doing my master's in biotechnology, and I got to learn more about the clinical side. So um, people really tend to focus on clinical when you're talking about drug development. And it's funny because I was so focused on preclinical in the animals. And I I bring that perspective with me now. So I am the senior category director of in vivo services at Scientist, and that means I cover anything having to do with live animals as far as it pertains to pharma, and I also do our animal welfare quality and compliance. So I bring that kind of hands-on experience, and I'm also a voting board member on the North American 3Rs Collaborative group. So really pushing for animal welfare quality, compliance improvement kind of across the board.
0: Thanks. Kind of stepping away from your professional career and more into your personal life, Can you share some details about the diagnosis that I had mentioned earlier, and how it affected you and your work?
1: Yeah, so a couple years ago, when I got really sick, um, I had a bout of strep throat, which I used to get all the time as a child. Um, Those of us who are parents probably dread hearing the word strep throat, Um, but I, I had a bad bout of it, and it it made me pretty ill. I ended up in the emergency room, and there was some confusion confusion around, you know, what was going on? Why was this making me so sick, especially when I had had it, you know, what feels like a million times. And the eventual thought was that I had this kind of interesting rare condition called IgA nephrop- nephropathy. Um, so basically what happens is they think that my body is, uh, my immune system is attacking itself and kind of getting clogging up my kidneys, if you will. So we know that antibodies are really big in our systems and those can kind of clog the pipes. So it was really aggravating my kidneys. And I kind of just dealt with it for a couple of years to get actually diagnosed with it. You have to have a kidney biopsy. And they told me that there weren't really any treatment options anyway. So I kind of felt like, well, why get a kidney biopsy if it's, if it's not going to make any difference? So I ended up kind of just sitting with it for a while. And it was, it was difficult because I really didn't have any answers. And it was just kind of something I tried to pretend didn't exist in my daily life.
0: So since there wasn't really a treatment for it yet, it is considered, you know, an orphan and rare disease. Can you tell the audience a little more about these types of diseases?
1: Yeah, so there are diseases that don't occur in a large portion of the population. And because of that, they often don't receive a lot of funding. There's, um, It's not like breast cancer, you know, where everybody knows about it, and there's organizations and walks and other things. And that's understandable. It's not, you know, any sort of bias or anything. It's just there's so many of these orphan and rare conditions that affect only, you know, sometimes a few, like a handful of people, and sometimes a few thousand. Um, So there's really just not a lot of information out there on it. And it was kind of interesting trying to, you know, even figure out who to see and who to ask questions of in the first place, because it's not like there's some massive organization of people that have this for me to go talk to. So I actually had to look for some specific specialists. And luckily, because of my background and um, my master's, I've done a a lot of research, I was able to kind of figure that out pretty pretty quickly, I think, on the whole.
0: So once you decided to enter into a relevant clinical trial, how did you go about searching for those in the first place? And how did you then decide to finally enroll in the one that you did?
1: Yeah, I guess I had some questions about why there was no treatment for this. It's not the rarest of the rare uh, conditions. So I figured somebody must be working on it somewhere. And I kind of just kept my ear to the ground every once in a while doing a Google search when it would crop up in my daily life, you know, little reminders that I'm living with this condition. And eventually, I was able to, I think I was searching on like clinicaltrials.gov. And there's some other Um, places you can you can look but basically just putting in whatever condition it is you have and then clinical trials will bring up a wealth of information in this case it was the applause trial and it had its own web page and own information i was able to look and see where the closest pi so where the closest investigator to me was which happened to be in i think kansas city missouri and i was able to just get their email and email them
0: Did your background as a researcher really help in the search and on this journey of finding where to go? Absolutely.
1: I had a tremendous leg up just knowing how clinical trials work, um, knowing the industry, and also knowing things like protocols and blood sampling. Um, I was a sample collection technician for a long time doing timed, timed collections all the time. So, you know, and even I used to quote clinical trial, um, bioanalysis of all the blood samples from the patients. So I had an idea of what was going to happen in the trial. What would, um, what would the outcomes be? What would be needed from me? And that made me really good at asking questions, about it. I think I asked some questions that they probably don't hear patients ask very often, including if I could see the actual protocol. I, I don't think people are usually interested in things like that. So it was a tremendous benefit for me.
0: On the flip side of that, knowing everything that goes into it, you know, and all the details you had just mentioned, how did you feel leading up to it? You know, was there any anxiety or was there extreme confidence? On the other end of the spectrum, how were you feeling leading up to the clinical trial?
1: Um, honestly, I was more anxious to get diagnosed properly than I was to enter the clinical trial. So obviously, um, the phase of the trial I was in, they were looking for patients that are confirmed to have this disease and have certain, um, parameters that need to be met. And one of those is that you have to be diagnosed and that's a kidney biopsy. So that was what really scared me. Um, luckily the crew who did it for me were really kind, um, I explained to them my research background and that I had done similar things in primates and pigs, and so they talked to me through the whole process. They gave me some cool medicine uh, where I could feel what was happening, but I just didn't care for some reason, which was great. And I think that was the biggest source of anxiety for me. Um, I I kind of knew the results were going to come back and be positive. I was convinced that this was what it was. So then when I rolled down to the actual clinical trial and doing you know, the blood sampling and the questions and the physical, I was not concerned at all. It was just like a a check-in.
0: That's great. So without going into too much detail, kind of following your experience, what is one common myth that you think you could debunk regarding clinical trials, having experienced it firsthand yourself?
1: I would say people have this perception that clinical trials are on kind of two two ends of the spectrum where you're either a perfectly healthy patient that has nothing going on and you're testing for safety or you're very very sick like at the end of your life um, and it's a last ditch effort. And that's not the case. There's thousands of people that are participating in these every day at varying levels of health and I'm not, you know, elderly or you know waiting in hospice or any of the other things that you kind of picture going along with being in a clinical trial. And we have to remember that the drugs that we all take, um, or some of us take, you know, every day or have been taking for our entire lives, those were all tested and went through clinical trials. And that requires a whole slew of people. So it's not what you picture.
0: That's an excellent point. If you were to consult someone considering entering into a clinical trial, what are some of the main tips that you would give them? Yeah,
1: I would say keeping track of everything is really important. There's a lot of medical information that's going to come your way. And so you have to record it really carefully and make sure that you're kind of keeping on top of things, especially if this isn't your area of expertise. Ask a lot of questions, you know, write down the answers, leave yourself notes. If you think of something in the middle of the night, email the coordinator or someone the next day. Um, the people administering the trial really want you to be comfortable and feel safe. So it's it's perfectly okay to reach out to them. And I wouldn't hesitate to do something like that if you have questions. So, you know, just kind of staying organized, asking questions, um, and speaking up when you're uncomfortable, too. You can stop at any time and leave. Um, you can just tell them you're done, and you can walk out, and that's perfectly within your rights. Um, you know, hopefully no one gets to that point. But it kind of made me feel better to know that I had an out as well, that I could just say, you know what, this has been enough and, and I can't do it anymore. Um, I didn't have to do that
0: obviously, but
1: it was uh, reassuring for me.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Great, great point. Um, in previous conversations we've had about this topic and about this experience, you mentioned that you felt you had come full circle. Can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Yeah. Um, I think the very first research I did, I was maybe a sophomore in college and I remember having to go to these classes and things to learn about the 3 Rs and um cooks and ALAC and all these things. I didn't really I understood it at some level but I don't think it really all sunk in as being a part of a a tapestry of what has to happen for drugs to actually make it to development. And working in a small academic like lab like that, you know, helping one grad student, that's probably not going to be the next blockbuster drug. You know, it's very unlikely that it's going to make it all, all the way through. And so I think I had a hard time kind of connecting those. So then when I finally got into doing, you know, toxicology regulated services, and then kind of going to the clinic, I felt like I had come all the way around the circle of understanding what goes into it and also being involved in the whole thing. I've been involved in, you know, the earliest stages now of drug development all the way to a phase three clinical trial. And that's, that's really exciting for me. Um, And I also felt like I owed it back to the research community and back to all the animals that I've worked with or utilized to kind of do my part It's it was it was my turn to
0: give my blood samples, I guess. (laughs) It sounds like what you're saying is it's a universal responsibility to contribute to scientific research. So what are some other ways you would suggest doing so?
1: Yeah, it's totally okay if people don't feel comfortable participating in a clinical trial like this. And, you know, hopefully, knock on wood, not everybody has a rare disease and are, you know, a sought after patient. Hopefully, you're a boring patient for someone. But there are other things that you can do to kind of contribute, you can opt in for health information sharing, if that's something you feel comfortable doing. Um, Something simple, like sharing data from your fitness watch, or, um, you know, recording heart rates, or sleep, sleep patterns, or things like that, that can all go back into data. And I think we're besides the privacy concerns that you obviously need to be really careful about how your data is used and what you give permissions for, I think we're in a really interesting time right now where um, researchers are using artificial intelligence tools. They're using really advanced analytics to take all of the data that they're getting from some of these health things and really put together other pictures and make new connections. So if that's something that you feel comfortable doing, that can be, you know, just toggling a button on your phone is a really easy way to contribute to research. Um, And along with that, I would recommend, you know, if you've ever given blood um, through the Red Cross or other organizations, you can also sign up to be a bone marrow donor. Um, They can use some of that statistical analysis too. And it's just, you know, basically whatever you feel comfortable with. And if you don't feel comfortable sharing any of that, that's perfectly fine as well.
0: That's excellent advice, Megan. Thank you for that. I think that's about it, all we have time for. We are going to wrap it up there, but I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you for opening up and sharing your experiences with us and the learnings that you've taken and how those are applicable, you know, across the audience and across populations. Hope to talk to you again soon and have a wonderful day. Wonderful, thank you so much. hope you enjoyed this episode of Real Science and that you'll tune in to future episodes where scientists, just like you, answer questions about their life, their work, and share insights into what it's like to be doing real science. Don't forget to subscribe.